There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today on the show, I'm joined by Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions to discuss what he would do in a series of challenging deer hunting scenarios. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And we're back today for another one of our What Would You Do podcasts. If you've heard these in the past, the basic gist is this. We're going to run our guests through a gauntlet of different, very specific scenarios and ask them what they would do in that situation. Why would they do that? How would they do that? This might be something like, imagine it's October 15th and we've got this wind direction, we've got these conditions and you're in this state and this challenging thing happens. Now what? It's that kind of stuff. And I found over the last year and a half that we've been doing these, this gets us a different level of insight into how these amazing deer hunters operate, how they think, how they go about deciding what to do and how to do it. I personally have found these to be some of the most valuable conversations I've had recently, and I'm hoping that you feel the same way. And today's guest, I think, is going to be right up there as far as the quality of all the other What You Do podcasts that we've done. We've got Jeff Sturgis. He's been on the podcast three times, maybe four times over the last seven, eight years. He's amazing. He is the author of several books. He runs the website and YouTube channel, Whitetail Habitat Solutions. He is a consultant. He has a tremendous amount of experience on the habitat management side and on the hunting side, whether that's private land or public land. He's done it all. He's got a great perspective on things. Uh, He hails from the upper Midwest, but he's hunted elsewhere too. I think you're really going to enjoy this. If you don't know Jeff yet, this is a great introduction to him. And with that said, I don't have much else for you. I think we should get into my conversation with Jeff. I've got some questions for him that I know you are going to be interested to hear his answer to. So thanks for listening. And here we go. All right. With me now from the road in the middle of the God awful traffic of Chicago is Jeff Sturgis. Jeff, thank you for being here. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure, Mark. Always, always enjoy chatting with you. Even if I'm driving through that gauntlet of Chicago. I, I know how painful that can be. So, uh, I, 
I recognize the sacrifice you are making right now to try to balance that chaos with this conversation. So uh, appreciate you making it all work. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. Where are you heading? Where are you heading towards? You doing a client visit? Is that right? Um, actually, going to the the Huntwise crew over in Grand Rapids. Uh, they're a uh, partner I work with very closely, so I'm driving over there. We have a dinner meeting tonight, and then we're shooting a bunch of videos in the morning, and I'm driving right back. So kind of 15 hours of uh, round trip road traffic over today and tomorrow. Nice. What do you, What do you do on a long road trip like that? A lot of people maybe listen to podcasts. Uh, hopefully, this podcast. But uh, but what do you do? Yeah. Because you don't need you don't need to learn anything from the Wired Hunt podcast. So what do you do? Well, I, I do like listening to podcasts here and there, but one of the things I do is this is a great time to actually be on podcasts. So when I'm at home, you know, a lot of times people want to do podcasts in the evening or on a weekend because they're doing something else during the day. Or for me, this is my full-time career. So I kind of like, you know, if I'm at home, we're either shooting video, I'm working on the property, or I'm spending time with family, friends. So I really like uh doing these while I'm driving uh, helps pass the time. And, and then I, I talk to people in the industry and friends. And so I, I think I'm on the phone usually when I'm traveling, uh, boy, uh, two thirds of the time, 75% of the time. Yeah. I'm right there with you. It's a good time to get the phone calls taken care of when, uh, when you don't really want to do them otherwise, and you've got to be in the field or doing stuff like that. This is a great way to make use of that road yeah. time. Oh, it's a really good way. So that's a, and you know, like with you, I always enjoy making time for you and making sure this works out. But um, it, it does work out really well to, if it sounds okay, at least uh, to do this while on the road. So I do, I do, I listen to my music. I have my sports talk. I like listening to. So there's there's all kinds of stuff. But nice, not bad. It's like my mobile office. I know it's a pretty nice situation. Um, well, here's yeah, yeah, not too bad. Here's my game plan for this, Jeff. And this might be unfair okay. because I'm going to run you through a gauntlet and I'm going to run you through a gauntlet while you're already going through a gauntlet. So that's, that's probably not kind of me, but, uh, like a double. Yeah, but, but I've, I've got confidence. It, yeah. It's kind of like a uh, client. You can imagine with them face to face, they hit me with all, all kinds of questions. So yes. that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes. So, so while you're dealing with the Chicago traffic, I'm going to run you through what we call the, what would you do gauntlet? where basically I'm going to outline a series of very specific situations and then you know ask you to explain to me what you would do in that situation and, and what your thought process is, why it was that you would do this thing. Um, so we'll kind of start yeah. with some habitat-related things, move into some okay. hunting season-related things, and, and you know, as we, as we do often with these, feel free to get as deep into the weeds as you want. Um, you okay. know, we, there's there's never a detail that's too far as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that sounds great. I'm gonna lay out a story for you, and then I'm gonna pitch it to you, okay. and then see what you think. Does that sound okay? Okay. Yeah, it sounds really good. All right, I think we just get right into it. So uh, here's the first situation, Jeff. Let's imagine that you own a 40 acre square of property. And let's say this is in north-ish Wisconsin. It's mostly okay. big timber. That part of Wisconsin's got a lot of timber. 
northern-ish Wisconsin, and there's not a lot of agriculture around. Maybe there's a field within a mile or two, but you're, you're not surrounded by it. And this is your right. first, this is your very first year owning it. And you just bought it in the spring. Maybe it's, it's June or July. Maybe we'll say the summer when you purchase it. So you get access to it in June or July. Your very first month or two of preseason, without knowing anything else, assuming some basics, what's the very first project or two you would tackle to try to get this property ready to hunt, other than getting stands up and stuff? If you could improve habitat in some kind of quick way with this basic understanding of the area, what do you think hypothetically you would tackle first? Let's, uh, I love that question because, um, you know, if you're in a, if that was in a, uh, a Northern Ohio area where there's, there's no cover, then, you know, covers at a premium and, uh, critical to address cover needs. And you still can't build a herd, with just cover, but in an area like that, you know, a, where there's not a lot of cover, Northern Ohio, Southern Michigan, Northern Indiana, Illinois, Southern Wisconsin, then, uh, then you can get away with utilizing that cover and having a decent hunt. When you get in more mixed ag area, uh, food plots and um, and food becomes a lot more critical. And then when you get into a northern area, uh, food is always the most uh, critical. And so what I like about an area like that, when you don't have ag and you don't have quality food, then a quality food plot program, you know, it, it is in my area where I'm at in southwest Wisconsin and, and southeast Minnesota, is critical and it sets the foundation of movement. But up there, um, it's even more so. And so my first step on a 40 like that is I would not have purchased it if I couldn't couldn't get uh, food plots in. Um, whether I was planning to hire a dozer and have them come in, but I would have bought a 40 that is somewhat diverse, probably had some open field cover or pasture, something I could easily convert to food uh, pretty quickly. And so that would be the first step and it's kind of like you can't have food without access so um your food determines where you access your access and and how you can hunt the land determines where the food goes so it's, it's hard to have one without the other but then that sets the entire foundation and movement that sets up where bedding areas should go travel corridors tree stands and so um just like i did in my my new property in minnesota last year the first steps were food access once that's determined um then stand locations and, uh, and then what I do is I put my, I put a mock scrape by every stand location. And if I have the ability, I'll put a trail camera uh, at every stand location too. So, um, that's kind of the sequence, um, just about anywhere, but up North where food is, is scarce. Um, you can really draw deer in, especially mature bucks that will, that have a tendency to travel a lot further to find quality food and find quality food. That's not hunter pressured. Um, then getting food in is something that can make or break your season for you just that first year. So it's not something that takes years. Once you get that food in, that's a calling card that'll extend for uh, you know a couple miles in any direction or more in an area like that. So so knowing not much else, I'm giving you a pretty vague situation here. Can you give me any more detail on? Ideally, how large of a plot you'd want in that situation. Ideally, what you think you would plant in that situation. Um, anything like that? Yeah, there's, and so, and this depends on someone's resources too. Um, you know, for me, 
my Southwest Wisconsin parcel that I hunt a lot. Um, that's uh, 30 acres of cover, 50 acre property. And on that, we get away with, and there's about 15 acres of fields. There's horse pastures, you know, house buildings. But there, um, I get away with about two and a quarter acres of food, you know, food plot. And I can offer something fairly diverse with a green base. And what I mean by that is, you know, we'll have brassica planted on one side. We'll have oats, beans, peas, late planted rye on the other side, all plantings August or later. And, but we have the complement of ag land. So what that means is that the, the food that I plant in a situation like that lasts a lot longer because deer are not feeding on that property typically uh, under the cover of darkness. They're out in the ag fields that surround the area. When you go up north and you don't have the complement of those ag fields and you don't have that quality food, you find that you know, deer feed five times in a 24-hour period as rhythmic pattern feeders. And you're familiar with rhythmic pattern feeders with your uh, kids. Yeah. You know, young kids. And, and when they're babies, I mean, they're feeding, what, every two hours, three hours. And that, it, you know, that expands over time. But with deer, they're right at that five hours or every uh, four, four hours, five hours, and they feed five times a day. So when they're doing that in an up north setting, they hit your food plots a much higher percentage of time out of those five times than they would in ag area. In ag area where you have the complement of ag at night and you're trying to make your property more of a daylight parcel, they're eating browse in their bedding areas, then they hit your food plot in the afternoon for the third feeding of the day. And then at night, a lot of times, they're out in the uh, surrounding ag field. So, uh, but when you go up north, so you might get one, one and a half times that they're really appreciably eating your food plot. Where up north, I've seen it in some cases, they're hitting your food plots five times in a 24-hour period. And so the two and a quarter acres I get away with in southwest Wisconsin, I like to expand that in a northern setting to four or five acres on that 40. So there's no set percentage of food plot that you should have on any parcel. It's really based on the region. And what's interesting, you could probably have half as many deer or a third as many deer in a situation like that, and you're still going to need double the food. You know, and with that, the more diversity, meaning if you have brassica, late planted peas, late planted beans, oats, rye, uh, Quite a few of those are not very browse resistant. For example, uh, brassica. Brassica, uh, I've seen it rot in the fields in, in the spring uh, in a very large ag area without a lot of cover and just a good complement of uh, ag fields and forages and southern more southern location. But then I've seen them not make it to hunting season in northern Michigan with poor soils and not a lot of deer. Uh, so it, it really depends on, uh, you know, how many deer are there, but that's kind of a guesstimate. If with that many acres, I would try to get something diverse in there just so I could offer something for the entire season. And, and so that's, that goes back to, you know, you really can, if you have one acres of plot that you're putting in, two acres, then you can really go to something more like uh, layering rye. I started doing that in a northern setting just because it was more browse tolerant. It's not a glamour crop, but again, if you have more diversity, it's going to be eaten a lot faster, um, especially with some of those non-browse-resistant varieties. So I really like um, if there is a, a potential of high browse pressure, then I'm going to do something like layering rye. What I mean by that is you're, you're broadcasting 100 pounds uh, per acre about a month before the first frost date. Let's say in the UP of Michigan, we'll just use that first frost date, which used to be mid-September. And, and so mid-August, I'm, I'm 
broadcasting 100 pounds, and then 100 pounds more about three weeks later, and then 100 pounds after that uh, towards the middle uh, latter portion of September. You try to space fill space horizontally with something that will continue to stay green even under the snow and freeze all the way into uh, all the way into the end of the season. So that's that's what I'd look at is you know if I had to go with something smaller, I would look at something more browse resistant like layering rye, maybe even starting out with a high amount of peas and white oats per acre, 100 pounds of peas, 50 pounds of oats. And then I uh, top dress that with 200 pounds of rye, maybe five weeks later, or just go with the straight rye. And if I could get that acreage up um, on that Wisconsin piece, then I'd look at something a little bit more diverse. Okay. So, so what about a reverse scenario? Let's take you out yeah. of northern Wisconsin – and let's take you to southern Michigan. And instead of a lot of timber, now you're in a lot of ag. It's mostly big, huge, wide-open ag fields. But again, you've got a 40-acre square, and you're trying to figure out how to make the most of this in the, the month or so, month and a half or so you have. Because you, you, you closed on June, late June maybe. It's July, August. You've got a little bit of time preseason to make these few changes. Uh what would you do in that scenario? Like the first project you would tackle in that scenario? I'm still uh, I'm still starting with food because that's going to actually give an attraction for the parcel. You know, with really without a good food plot program on private land, I actually wouldn't buy the land. That's I'd just go on public land because on public land I can actually find a food source of the moment. I can get into a remote area and enjoy hunting. Um, that that movement that that food source dictates. Um, privately, and you have to offer that movement and, and be good at it, uh, or you're not going to have that movement. So I would look at a smaller amount of food, uh, and then I would really try to um, gauge just that little bit of time, how many deer are in the area, how many deer are in the field. And if I'm looking at an average amount of deer, then I am going to plant a brassica base in a situation like that where I might worry about that basket not being eaten. And again, the whole reason I like brassica is it's nutritious for deer. It offers a lot of moisture. It's easy for them to digest, but it's uh, it can create a lot of volume quickly. And so something that you can really target towards late October, November, December. So I'd, I'd put that on one half plot uh, or plots. I mean, there were look at more like a two acre to three acre scenario for food. And, um, you know, if I had more, I'd step that up to corn the following year if I could. But just in that short period of time, I'd look at, um, you know, late planted mixture of beans and peas, especially their candy crops. So it established the pattern of use for those plots right off the bat. That's something I'd plant around August 1st in southern Michigan. Then on the other half, I'd plant brassica. Now, I'd want those two side by side, not mixed together. And the reason for that is you don't want to mix them because oats, rye, wheat can compete with brassicas. So you're just limiting the amount of volume you can have in your plots. You're taking from the brassica, you're taking from the rye and, and wheat that actually can be shaded out by brassica. So they're just fighting each other. So you separate that out, uh, them apart because you're trying to maximize the amount of volume that you can have in that given space that you're working with, making yourself as, as efficient as possible. Starting with that, you know, I'd look at planting that, um, that combination, but I'd start with weed control right off the bat. And so I'm looking at how can I eliminate weeds? Because weedy food plots during the summer might be 
you know, more of an attraction on a scale of attraction uh, for deer overall because they like diversity. But when all those weeds die in August and September, they just take from your food plots and they can turn a two acre food plot into a quarter acre of food due to weed pressure and competition. And so really addressing weed concerns, um, you know, it's some people, if you don't believe in chemicals, you can try uh, disking or tilling the, the ground several times in a row uh, to do that. Um, I prefer the chemical route just because then I don't have to use or buy heavy equipment and um, a big tractor. And uh, so a lot easier to spray. And I use a lot of rotations, um, you know, going forward to try to limit my use of chemicals, and build the soil at the same time. But, um, but I really would look at weeds, um, getting those food spots established and establishing that pattern of use right off the bat. And that would early August, extending to September. You really want those food pots to be doing very well by the middle of September, end of September, so you're, those deer in the area are getting used to it. And then that food establishes, especially the if there's food and it's adjacent to good bedding opportunity, then you're going to hold those against that food source. And then the, if you have enough room left over, you'll have bucks behind those does into more remote locations on your property. So then you can hunt. Then you have morning stands backed by buck bedding areas for the rut, uh, pre-rut and rut, maybe even opening day of gun season on November 15th in Michigan, or um, you're looking at evening hunting on the way to food or closer to food. And uh, But really starting with food establishes that entire pattern of use. So, and hunting, or your hunting uh, yeah. stand uh, assemblage. Now here's the, the worst case scenario though. You know, food is so important to this program that you're outlining but what about this situation which is something that i've called you and talked to you about in past years and uh, it's something that so many of us dread but what if we go into the late summer with the game plan like you just described we plant our fall food plots let's say august 26th and there's great rain in the forecast and we get our brassicas in the ground and we get some cereal grains in the ground whatever it might be and it looks good we get it in the ground, but then that rain that was forecasted for tonight ends up just being a little drizzle, and then tomorrow it's gone. There's nothing. And the next day, there's nothing. And the next week, yeah. there's nothing. No. And two weeks, three weeks goes by, and no no rain appears. What do you do in that situation when you plan it on August 25th, you get a little bit of rain in the front, and then it's a drought for three weeks, and now you're into September, opening day is October 1st, and it's, I don't know, September 15th or something, and you've got nothing coming out of the ground what do you do then it, the really cool thing about that is you just don't have to worry about it it's not it's uh there's you know try to get that out of your mind like so many people just stress out about that and lose sleep and that was my wisconsin last year the, it was the first time i had a brassica failure due to due to uh drought um anywhere but in wisconsin since 2002 2020 was the first time so it's not very common this happens, especially if you can pay attention to when you actually put the brass in the ground. For example, you're saying August 24th. Well, if there's really good rains, I target around August 1st. But if there's really good rains the end of July, I'll stick it in before that rain if I can. Um, if there's no rain in the forecast, I'll wait till the 15th of August. So there's a little bit of gray area there for when you plant and, and paying attention to the rain. But once that fails, and most of the time I'd say on most properties it fails more because the deer eat it down to the dirt, and there's a lot of complexities that go into that too, but but really you're looking at if 
you figured out it failed in early September in southern Michigan, uh, mid-September in southern Ohio, southern uh, Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois, northern Kentucky, then you're putting about 200 pounds of winter rye right over the top of your failed food plot. And if there's still uh, 40%, 30% soil exposure towards the end of September, early October, you can add another 100 to 200 pounds of winter rye right over the top of that. And so it, it sounds like a lot of seed, but at that point, you're trying to fill space horizontally, not vertically. And so you're just offering a fresh, young carpet of rye. Do you love it? When you um, say that, especially when. Sorry to interrupt, Jeff, but when you say covering oh, things horizontally versus vertically, uh, some people might not understand what you mean. What do you mean by horizontal versus vertical okay. coverage? What do I mean by that is like a typical rye planting would be about 100 to 110 pounds per acre, same with wheat, maybe even oats. And so you'd plant that early and that's going to offer a lot of height, but those stems are spaced out every two, three, four inches. So you're really not filling space between stems. And so there's a lot of open bare soil. So when you plant late um, and you plan for that, and it's, and it's good to plant late, it's better because then you can plant more seed. You're not looking for seed head production in the future. You're not harvesting this the, follow, the following year. So you're looking at uh, multiple stems. So your, your stems per square inch is much higher, three or four times higher than a traditional planting. And in that way, you're filling space horizontally, meaning you're just stem after stem after stem. So when you stand over the field, it looks like a sod, you know, the, a lawn instead of um, a field where there's a stem every three or four inches. So you, you see less of the soil. Um, and, and in that way, it's, it's a fresh, young crop. Deer love rye, uh, wheat, even oats when it's young. And, uh, and so you're taking that low, lush, lush carpet into the hunting season that's very attractive, and it gives the deer a mouthful every time they uh, take a bite. So it's not just, um, and, and, and you can't do that early. For example, that's why I say you, if you're layering rye, and we're talking winter rye, fall rye, rye grain, not rye grass, but you're, that's why if you're doing that and you're layering, layering it, you're starting about a month before the first frost date in your area with just 100 pounds. You don't want to put 300 pounds down in that first that first hit because you're going to uh, fill that space with a lot of growth that is not fresh and not tender. And, and you're really not, um, you know, it's almost like they are competing for nutrients at that point. And so you're going to limit the amount of attractive forage that you have, where if you layer that hundred pounds, hundred pounds, hundred pounds, that layer down at the bottom is always fresh and tender. That middle layer is okay. And then that upper layer. So you're really trying to, fill that space that you have as much as possible. And that's where the rye, whether you had a plot failure because deer overbrowsed it or um, because that it actually failed due to drought, you can still save the season. And I, I just look at it like, yeah, it's a little bit of extra money for the seed um, and more time for planting, but it's so easy. You just broadcast it. I use a handway or earthway handheld spreader, just a bag spreader. Um, and, and so it's easy to put out, you just have to pay attention, see where your plots are at early September to mid September. But, um, I try to just not, not worry about it. You know, that's, that's what I had to do last year in, in Wisconsin. It was crazy. Just 50 minutes apart from Minnesota. We had great rains in Minnesota and it was a real drought factor in August into early September in Wisconsin. So just, I threw about three to 400 pounds of rye over it in two different plantings, uh, total. 
and uh, and just had a really thick covering of rye and enjoyed the season. Still had deer hitting it, and uh, you know not the volume or diversity I'd like, but at that point you just can't worry about it. And the cool thing is we're not like farmers where we're harvesting this and we we have to rely on our, uh, for you know for a living and to feed our family. We're just feeding deer and just get something green on there and. You know, you can try with different, and that's even like if you're up in like that first scenario in northern Wisconsin, where we try to have a diverse planting in three or four acres, but if the deer eat it to the ground or we have drought, just throw rye on it and enjoy the season. So in that scenario, when you're broadcasting, you're top seeding that rye, that winter rye, do you have to time that with a special set of weather circumstances, like you need to do it just before rain, or do you just... Put it down when you can, and it'll germinate next time there's rain, and you don't need to worry too much. Like, what's your thought process in this kind of emergency scenario? I'm getting, I'm just getting the rye on the ground when I can. The good, the great thing about rye is it's very, uh, it's a very resistant seed to uh, drought uh, conditions where uh, even cold. They've had it germinate down. I think Michigan State University did a study where it germinated down to 37 degree. Uh, soil temperature so it'll grow in very cold uh, circumstances i've actually had it germinate in early october in the up of michigan and that was um after three or four inches of snow on opening day um of october i, I spread that rye at the end of september it melted over a week period it got back up in the 60s and 70s and that melting snow actually germinated the rye it it it's a very hardy seed um, unlike clover or brassica those tiny little seeds dry out quickly if they half germinate and then you don't get any rain, they'll just die immediately. Or rye is very, very hardy. So um, I would look at more just getting it on the ground at that point. And the great thing about August into September and October is rain and moisture only increases as you go into November. So it's it's on the increase at that time, not the decrease. August can be spotty with thunder showers, but once you get into September, October, rains are, rains are definitely coming. Okay. All right. So let's just move this scenario forward a little bit further. And let's say you, you managed to get your first year of food plots and improvements in, and they actually performed wonderfully. You had the kind of deer sightings and deer use you were hoping for. Um, it worked out great. But you noticed one thing. And the one negative thing you noticed was that your neighbors on all three sides of this square. Let's say you've got road frontage on one side and then neighbors on the other three sides of your 40-acre square. All your neighbors found out that you were making a bunch of improvements and that deer really like to hang out on your property. And so all of them started posting up right on the property line. And you were noticing deer spooking. You were seeing neighbors walking the property line. You saw ladder stands right on the edge, et cetera, et cetera. You fast forward to year two knowing what the neighbors were doing in that situation, how would you change things or what would you modify or, or what might you do to account for neighbors that were trying to crowd your little piece of heaven that you created? Well, the good thing is, is that, um, bucks in general and, uh, you know, especially if you look at those, they, they might move 50 to hundred yards during the daylight on a, on an average day. Uh, during the entire season, especially if they have the food and the cover that they want, and that's what you're trying to do. Uh, a buck in that situation, where there's not a lot of cover, he might only move 100 to 300 yards uh, during daylight. And I'm not talking about his three-mile home range. It's mostly at night. It's during the daylight. 
And if he has that food and he has those conditions on your land, what I find is when those neighbors start to pack it in around you, then those deer tighten their movements or daily movements. And so I'm not saying that you can hold a dozen mature bucks on your land, but you can really have them focus on your land during the daylight, especially that afternoon feeding. And when that happens, you, you take your neighbors out of the, out of the scenario quite a bit. And what I do too, in a situation like that is where if I have a cabin in the middle of the property or something like that, but in general, um, I'm actually seen around my borders a lot. And so that helps me preserve a high percentage of the 40 acres that I own, make payments on, pay taxes on. That allows me to develop that core area in the center. Um, I really like offering, you know, in a case like that, let's say you had food in the middle of the 40, uh, it's not a very valuable 40 acre parcel because you only have about 250 yards of depth before you hit your neighbor's borders. You're expecting to hold those fallen young bucks, old bucks in 250 yards of depth. And it's just, or I'm sorry, 150 yards up, and it's just not possible. And so I'm looking at, and even a 20 acre parcel that has food all towards the front, that'll have more depth, uh, 300 yards of depth. And what I mean by that is you're putting five acres of food, say uh, a rectangle 20 acre parcel is 220 yards by 440 yards. Let's say it's a rectangle running north and south. If you put all that food on the south side, close to the road and you can get around it without spooking deer. Now you have over 300 yards of depth to the back of your parcel. You have a lot of room to hold deer. And so if you're accessing around your border, in that case, and your food to one side, then it allows you to extend a lot of depth to your property. And that's where it becomes critical. That you're not bisecting your property and walking through the middle of it and spooking deer from either side, depending on which way the wind's blowing. You're trying to conserve as many core acres as possible that relate to that food let's say 25 acres, 28 acres, up to 40. Uh, you have that exterior access road. If your neighbors want to come, they're not coming through your land to get there, which means they're coming through their their land. And what, what I find is if they have a buck that's heading on their land and wants to hit your food every day, that buck just tightens his window of daylight movement onto your land. And so he takes that neighboring hunting pressure out of the equation. You know, a case like that, you're going to be limited as far as how older bucks you can produce. Um, you know, that's all relative older buck. It might be if there's high high uh, hunting pressure, you might be looking to shoot at two or three old buck every year. And that'd be great. Um, if there's lower hunting pressure and you don't have a scenario where they're on all sides, maybe you can actually find a three to four year old buck every single year, even in Southern Michigan. But you're, you're still doing what you can to reach that, um, that buck age structure potential on your land based on the constraints you have to work with. So accessing around your borders, making sure the food is located to one side primarily so you could extend the depth into the parcel. And then working on the deer habitat within the parcel, that's stage two, that's usually the second year, where you're working on cuttings and habitat so that you're layering those those, uh, formations of quality bedding cover so that you're separating deer more and you're giving them the illusion that this parcel is a lot bigger than it actually is. For example... The opposite of that would be just 40 acres of open mature hardwood. You can see all the way through it with just an inch of snow on the ground in November, where if you have those cuttings and you have those different habitat features, then you can actually um, create a situation where deer feel comfortable only bedding 100 yards away from a food source because there's so many layers of cover to get to that point that they don't see each other. They might smell each other. They might hear each other, but they can feel like they have their own space. So there's a lot of things you can do to still improve your property and just 
kind of take your your neighbors out of the out of the equation. Yeah, one of the main things you talked about right there was access, and I wonder about how you would handle a challenging access kind of monkey wrench thrown into the gears here. What if you had a property like this that you improved and and maybe even before you improved it, it had a lot of great things going for it. It had great cover. It had some great food sources already and places where you could add more. So you were able to really fine tune it the way you wanted to and provide everything these deer would want to hang out on your property a lot, except one downside. And the downside of this is that this property only offers access from the west. And so with the predominant winds that you get in southern Michigan or wherever this is, you're getting a lot of those west, northwest, southwest winds throughout most of the hunting season. And right. that means that most of the time you're trying to get in there, your wind is is blowing right in there where you want to go. So in that situation, would you would you avoid and actually let me let me let me Yeah, that's right. I think I'm describing this correctly. Would you avoid <laughs> purchasing a property like that at all that would blow into no i'm getting this wrong i think it's the opposite what i'm trying to describe is that the no, co- okay. did i get oh, it right you're, you're right yeah yeah if you're coming in from the west your predominant winds are west and you know and, in most cases like that you can still you can still go up to your north line or your south line you know to, to come in yep. um even if you can't start at that point you have to angle over and so then um I'm making those habitat improvements accordingly. And a lot of times, like if the road is on the west side, then I'm trying to position that food source um, or those food sources as close to the west border as possible, but not so close that I can't move in and park without spooking deer or access a cabin or a trailer. And then also I want to be able to get around that food on the north and south side. So that way, if I'm, there's, it's, it's hardly ever straight west the wind and so if it has a southerly component i mean i'm walking in on the north side and if it has a northerly component i'm walking in on the south side and in, in that case i'd rather have the food close to the road because that food offers a stopping point um, i'm not running a line of food that go extends to the roads so they get hit on the road but i'm putting a big patch of food there so that i can get around it and then the deer have to move from the east side of the property all the way across the, my own property to get to that food source. And then I can hunt those lines of movement where if I can get around that food in the morning, I can go all the way to the back on the east side, wait for deer to come back to me in the form of bucks in those far, furthest bedding areas. Or I can hunt the sides or even at the food source in the afternoon, evening as deer are moving to that food um, and more predictable afternoon movement to that food because I haven't hunter pressured it and they're getting there about an hour before dark, you know, half hour or at dark in the case of the bucks. Okay. So, so in that case, I, I, you know, as long as I could cut up to the north and get around or cut up, cut down to the south, where, where I see problems or people run into problems, and, and then it boils down to how good the area is um, and you know, what type of hunting pressure there is generally in the area. But there might be a, a big swamp on the south side that cuts off uh, the lower 10 acres. And so you, you can't move through there on the south side. Um, and so really it pinches all your movements up to the north. And so I run into scenarios like that sometimes where then you just have to figure out where you can put food, how it relates to your land and your neighbor's land, and how you can actually get around your property without spooking deer and your improvements. It, it, you know, and sometimes people's improvements are getting in the way. 
and it's hard. You know, I come in looking at it black and white. People have problems, so I look at it um, as if there's a food source that's allowing deer to pattern you more than them. Just get rid of the food source or shrink it, cut it in half, screen it better, something. You know, there, there's some people that I've talked to who look at a scenario like that, and they say that they will embrace the impact they make. And they'll say, okay, I know that deer will know I'm here, so I'm always going to walk the same access path or the same 75%. I take the same route every single time. So deer just get used to the fact that there's always human activity on this route and they eventually accept it. And then you stick to that and they almost pattern that behavior. That's okay. But then you branch off of that and drop into other places where they're not expecting you and you avoid rather than a bunch of different access routes all over the place that are all unexpected and that always spooked you right away. And I don't know, is that general idea, does that make sense to you at all? Or does that seem counterintuitive? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, extremely counterintuitive if you actually want to be the neighborhood influencer and shoot mature bucks on a consistent basis. You know, I'm not talking about one every three or four years. I'm talking about shooting 80% of the target box in the area over a 10 year period. And so you have to give them that space where they have the illusion, because if you, if now I'm all for that, if it's exterior access roads, but not through the middle of the property, because they never get used to it. A mature buck never gets used to it. If you're hunting two or three year old box in lower Michigan, then a portion of those two year olds might, might get used to it. The three year olds won't. But if you step up to um, an area that has four or five year old bucks, they won't put up with that in any way. So it really depends on what you want to get out of your hunting land. And uh, deer will never get used to you coming in or out unless you're in a state like Kansas or Iowa, what I refer to as fantasy land states. And in those areas like Kansas, they have 25,000 bow hunters. I think Iowa has 65,000 bow hunters. Michigan had over 400,000 bow hunters at one time. So the amount of pressure you can apply in some of these other states um, is a lot different than you can apply in 95% of all whitetail areas. And and so what you do down there, it can't be translated into say a, a higher pressure state at the same time, even in those areas, you probably have six or seven year old bucks. And so, you know, you might be content with shooting four or five year old monster bucks, but if you really want to step your game up to those oldest bucks in the neighborhood, even in an area like Kansas or Iowa, you're going to have to uh, really play to a different tune where deer just, Settle on the fact that deer are never going to get used to other than does, fawns, and maybe some young bucks. Yeah. They'll get used to it. Kind of like you drive a four-wheeler by and deer right. stand up and watch you. Um, and, and you can even extend that. Uh, I know some of the guides and outfitters in the Buffalo County area in Wisconsin, well, they, they kill a lot of their bucks by um, driving hunters to stands. But they also only experience about a 20% success rate overall with their clients. I expect to have an 80, 90% success rate every single year. So my expectations are a lot higher for myself than, than putting up with just, you know, knowing there's good bucks in the area. You bump one, another one comes in and you get one every three or four years. Yeah. I would love to be in the situation you described there where there's six and seven year old bucks and you have to settle for a four or five year old every year. That would be great. <laughs> I would, I'd like to find that one. It's funny, I go to uh, clients in some of those areas, because I have clients, I've, I've had one in Gaylord, Michigan, where they hadn't seen an antler buck in seven years Wow! during the daylight. Um, so they, they literally had not seen a buck as their hunting group for seven years. So that's, 
the bottom of the barrel, and then I'll have clients in uh, some of those uh, fantasy land states, and they're looking at, yeah, they've been doing great on the four and five year olds and seeing them 150, 60, even a 70 inch buck, 170 inch buck, but they're those 180, 190, 200 inch bucks. And people say, like, you know, a 200 inch buck is rare, but I know a lot of different states and areas where um, hunters and landowners are seeing 200 inch plus deer every single year. And so it's not, it seems like a pipe dream, but it really isn't. They're a lot more common. It's just in those areas, they just have to get the age and a high percentage or fall into that category a lot higher than you'd think. But even then, um, a lot of those clients are hiring me because they want to step up their game. They, you know, they, they have those. It, it's no different than if you're happy shooting two or three-year-olds in Michigan and then you notice that some of your neighbors are starting to pick off some four-year-olds and you think, man, I just want to do things different so I, I can start tapping into those a little bit. Yeah. So let, let's move into a hunting season situation here. Let's say sure. you've got your property. Let's say it's a, hypothetically it's a lease. It's a lease property. It's something you've been able to kind of spend a little bit of time on. It's in pretty good shape. And throughout the summer, late summer into September, you've been getting daylight trail camera pictures of a good mature buck that you would love to get a crack at. And he's moving in daylight here and there, early September. You get a little bit of him in mid-September. You get a little bit of him in late September, daylight. But you get to opening yeah. day. And, and I guess we'll use one of those states that have an October 1st opener, like Michigan or wherever. And you get to just before opening day. And you've been very excited because he's been moving in daylight leading up to the opening day. And then the day before the opener, a heat wave appears. And now September 30th, it's 80 degrees. And then the forecast says that October 1st is going to be 77 degrees. And October 2nd is going to be 76 degrees. And you see that the first couple of days of the season are not looking so good for what we would hope as far as weather conditions for big buck movement. At the same time, though, you right. also know that, man, I know all my neighbors are going to start hunting on October 1st. And they're going to be out there hitting it. So you've got two thoughts in your mind. One side of you says, wow, I should wait until the hot weather dissipates and save my hunts for when the conditions are a little bit better. The other side of you says, man, every day I wait, there's more and more pressure around me. And this buck that was moving in daylight in September is going to get spooked and turn nocturnal or hang out just by his bedroom. What would you do in that situation, Jeff? Would you hunt opening night, even though it's going to be warm because you want to take advantage of that first night of the season? Or would you wait until the first front moves through or weather improves a little bit? That's a really good question. I love that question a lot. And, and it really depends on the hunting pressure around me and how I, how safely I feel I can get in and out of a stand. So say, for example, um, likely because of the heat, he's not going to be moving early. And But at the same time, if I can get into a position where I'm taking advantage of food source movements or water hole or something, um, even back in the woods, if I feel I can go hit that stand and not leave a really good presence on the land, um, or a footprint, then I would definitely go in and, and try to hunt that deer. It all boils down to where I think that deer is coming from. And, and I look at it too, again, I'm looking at like, you know, I have in Wisconsin, for example, I have a lot of neighboring hunting pressure. Um, and those guys really don't have, those hunters don't really have much of an impact on the daylight movement that I have on my own parcel, even though it's only 38, because 
my food plots are daylight plots. My bedding areas are daylight plots. The mock scrapes, the travel corridors, everything that the deer are moving on in that parcel, they can differentiate even more when pressure comes that my my property is even more uh, daylight. Those big boxes, mature bucks, still have to move during daylight. Um, they're still feeding five times in a 24-hour period. They're on their feet those five times. And so I'm looking at, like, if there's not really that much impact to those that hunting pressure around, especially if he's daylight focusing on my land, and I've done my, my job to do that. And so really then it boils down to um, if I feel I need that front to get him to move early enough for me to go into that stand and actually hunt him, then I'll wait for that cold front. If not, then I'm going in there and sitting as soon as possible with the thought that I'm not going to have a great amount of impact on future hunts uh, by hunting a stand that might be kind of iffy on percentages of chance based on the hot weather and poor weather. Yeah. All right. So let's take it one step further then. Let's say that sure. you, you decide that you need to wait for the front because of those conditions and because of the way your property sets up and the front is going to hit on October 7th, the evening of October 7th, maybe just after dark, the, the peak of that's going to push through. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, cold front's coming through. It's October 7th, and this is going to be great. Problem is, your wife says, things are really crazy right <laughs> now at home, and I do not want yeah. you spending a bunch of time in the woods. You've got one hunt over the next week. You've got one sit. Otherwise, you need to be at home helping out with stuff. So you could hunt the, that evening that the front hits. You could hunt the morning after. You could hunt the evening after. You could hunt the next day. You've got one sit, morning or evening. What sit would you pick for your best chances, given the the light amount of information I'm giving you? How would you approach that? So that time of year, um, I'm typically not hunting morning stands unless it's a long movement coming back from ag fields with no hunting pressure. And I feel just by little scouting intel that those bucks are hitting their bedding areas late just because they're taking a long time to go through fairly safe habitat and get back to their beds that they want to bed in back in the woods somewhere back in the cover. And so I'm, I'm not hunting a lot of morning situations and I don't really have a lot of good morning early season stands on either my property in Minnesota or Wisconsin until it gets to about October 20th in the pre-rut, maybe October 18th. And so um, right away I'm starting to, uh, migrate towards evening and, and looking at evening hunt. And if I had a couple of evenings to choose from, maybe the front's going through on one, I'm always looking for the first clearing conditions after the front goes through, meaning that I don't really care what the barometric pressure is because there could be another front coming through four days later and the pressure's down. Um, or it could be that it just cleared out completely and the pressure's, pressure's high. But if we just had a temperature drop of at least seven to 10 degrees or greater. And it seems like the greater the front, the more volatility there is in the weather, meaning uh, higher wind speeds, maybe thunderstorms, lightning, snowstorms, sleet, hail, rain, but there's, there's more of an extremity of weather factor. So I'm looking for that to all blow through. I don't care if the winds go from 30 to 15 miles an hour, or 15 down to five. I'm just looking for that time when everything's broken and everything's broken through meaning in the weather it's cleared up and then that's that time that i'm hitting that stand so i'm really watching those winds at that point so if that first evening opportunity let's say the weather went through or is going through right then and it's still at you know the peak winds are at 25 to 35 mile an hour 
Uh, and then the next evening, they're going to be down to 7 to 12. And it's cooling that next evening. There's no chance of rain, thunderstorms. Then I'm, I'm definitely taking that evening when, when the conditions have uh, somewhat cleared. You know, like I said, it doesn't mean that there's calm winds. I'd actually prefer a little bit of wind because then with some assemblage of wind, um, whether it's five miles, eight miles an hour, it's more dependable. And I think deer move when it's more dependable too. Uh, there's less variance. So, so anyways, I'm just looking for those conditions to clear, uh, the wind to subside a little bit, that temperature's definitely bottomed out. And that's where I kill a lot of my deer, uh, a majority of my bucks. Whether it was the morning after that happened in the rut, I really focused on mornings then, or the evening um, after that weather went through um, in the early season, October lull, late season, for feeding source or food source um, opportunities, hunting opportunities. Okay. You, you kind of answered my next question, but I, I'd love for you to go into a little bit more detail, which is, same question, but change the date from October 7th to November 7th. You only can pick one sit. Is it the morning after? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely the morning after. So there's even, you know, people say bucks move all day, middle of hour, middle of the day. And, you know, you see that, but you have to rest too. And typically they're resting in the heat of the day. Um, I, I think a lot of times where you have high hunting pressure, you'll see a lot of deer moving in the middle of the day just because someone bumped them from a half mile away when they got out of their stand. And so you may want to sit a little bit longer, but we're seeing a big drop off in deer activity um, on unpressured properties during the peak rut like that uh, between one and two and three and four, let's say it's getting dark at five thirty, So you have a little bit of window of movement in the evening, but boy, I've seen some outside Standing. I've had some great sits where I've seen 10, 12 bucks up till one o'clock in the afternoon, and it was just all morning long. And so I'm really focused. And I think there's in those times, um, if you're back by those bedding areas, you're not sitting on a food source somewhere or a food plot, you're actually near their bedding areas off to the side, downwind between bedding areas on a funnel. But um, really, you get several hours of outstanding hunting uh, from daybreak to uh, um, you know, 12, 1, 1 something like that. We had a time where we hunted four days during the rut. We sat dark to dark. This would have been going back to maybe 2003. And we saw between the two of us, approximately 24, 26 different bucks during that time. And we did not see one buck between 1130 and one. And it was just because it, you know, it was teens, 20 during the morning and it warm up to 30, 35 during the day that Bucks were just taking a rest, and and then we'd see a little bit of uh, flurry of activity last hour or two of daylight. Yeah. So if you want to maximize your time, even just a half sip, um, definitely focus on those mornings. Yeah. In fact, I'd choose a morning hunt like that if I had to just pick one day for the entire four month season besides opening day of gun season because I love the tradition of that. Yeah. Um, then I'd pick uh, one of those days in early November, um, a morning sit. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you 
open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Let's rewind a little bit, and let's go back into mid-ish October. Let's say we're in the window that a lot of people refer to as the October lull. Let's say October 15th to the 25th, give or take. And you head out there for an evening hunt on one of your spots, and you notice that there is a doe getting chased by a buck. And it's not a year and a half old just messing around. It's actually like a three-year-old buck, maybe even a four-year-old buck that's seemingly chasing a doe around. Some people would say, oh, man, the rut's early. Get after it. Some people would say, oh, it's an anomaly. Don't worry about it. Uh, would you observe that on your evening hunt in that window and change anything at all for the next day or the next week? Or would you continue as normal and assume that was just an anomaly that you're not worried about. Now, what was the date again, Mark? This scenario is somewhere between October 15th and 25th. Okay. And I'm seeing that rutting activity in the evening. Yep. You're seeing this early rutting activity. There's a, a decently mature buck, a three or four year old maybe, and he's after a doe pretty hard. Uh, would you? Would that change your approach for the next day or two? Uh, or would you just keep on with your mid-October plan as usual? What would you do in that situation? Well, it's, it's tough because if it is like I'm looking at, we see a lot of rutting activity. One of the, one of the best signs of early season or pre-rut rutting activity is deer, when they're sitting dry all day, uh, meeting in a bedding area, they're eating acorns, um, they're eating buds, shoots. Uh, they're, they're working up a, quite a bit of thirst. We typically see them only hitting water holes in the evening, but 
right around the 19th, 20th, 21st of October, when it starts to get cold, those bucks start to come active in the mornings and all of a sudden they're hitting water holes at, you know, 10 o'clock noon, two o'clock in the afternoon, just cause they're thirsty. They're starting to move around a little bit more. So really depends on that time. I'm starting to hit my morning stands typically around the 20th of October at some point. So let's say this was the 15th in the evening. I see this mature box a little bit earlier than I typically would go in. Then I'm going to figure out, you know, if I think that box is in a bedding area or around a bedding area that I can actually hunt on that land. And he's one of my target bucks. I'm definitely going to try to get in there the next morning if I can um, and, and try to go after that buck in, in his bedding area or around a bedding area where I think he might be moving. What would that look like? Like what kind of, what, can you paint for me a picture what that type of morning setup would look like in a scenario that you would actually say, okay, I'm going in there and this is the type of spot I would sit. Yes. Um, so first things when you're accessing that I'm not going through a food source, I'm typically going well around food plots, ag fields, and I'm going in almost like a back door to that bedding area or off the side of it. So I'm getting on the downwind side. I'm not just walking into the middle of bedding area, knowing that I have to spook deer when I get out later in the day, I'm, I'm hunting to one side where I feel my wind. Um, I can blow my scent and not get in too much trouble. And so I'm looking at a lot of times those bedding areas, even on that 30 acre parcel, where we had food plots, I'm hunting high up above in the ridge tops. Most of those bedding areas I'm sitting by or the movements between them are approximately three to 400 yards away from uh, uh, the food plots down below in the valley. Um, we get a lot of surface areas, so it might be literally 400 yards away, 350 yards away. So they're quite a ways away from food. Um, I'm going around those food sources to get in. And then depending on where I'm blowing my scent, if I'm blowing my scent into a swamp or a pond or off a cliff where there's no deer, then I feel like I can get in there a half hour, 45 minutes before light and there's no problem. But if I need those thermals and I'm hunting in a hilly situation where, or, or maybe I'm blowing my scent into a, a horse pasture or an open field where a, a buck would not be during the daylight, but he might be right before, right before daylight, then I'm getting into that stand location, what I call just in time, where there's a short window period where I'm using the gray light to get into the stand. I'm getting on that downwind side of the bedding area. I'm blowing my scent into an iffy area before daylight, but once it hits daylight, I'm relatively safe. And so I'm getting into that stand at that time, um, you know, just in time where you're using the gray light, you're getting in. And um, so that'll depend, that'll you know, the access time will be determined by the location and how safe my scent is downwind to me before it even gets daylight. As you're discussing that, it made me, it sent me in a kind of random direction. So bear with me on this, Jeff. (laughs) Bear with me on my, on my, my random digressions here. But as I'm thinking about this, it somehow (laughs) it sent me down this rabbit hole in my mind where I started thinking about your, your hunting season last year. And how well things seem to pan out. You, you've got these plans that you put in place, and you've got these contingencies, and you've got a you've got an answer to every question seemingly in, in the real world when you're out there hunting yourself. And last year, it, from the outside looking in, it looked like everything went perfect. You killed all sorts of bucks. Your kids killed bucks. Your wife killed bucks. Uh, it seemed like you guys put seventy two tags on big mature bucks across your properties. <laughs> Something but, like yeah, but but what it makes me wonder is what's the situation that confounds you? 
Like, what's the question that you haven't had an answer to? What's the situation you found yourself in that you were cussing to yourself and like, damn it, I don't know what to do. Like, when's the last situation, the last time you found yourself in those shoes that you were confused or perplexed or frustrated by a buck and you got beat and you sat there in your bed at night thinking to yourself, dang, what in the world did I do wrong? Or why can't I figure this out? Can you think of a situation like that over the last couple of years that stands out that you could share with us where you where you got beat and you didn't have the right answer and you've had to think about it and stew on it and try to figure out what you should have done different? Is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, there is. Um, and my approach to hunting is I try to have this no-nonsense pragmatic approach. I look at it very methodically. So here's the plan. Um, these are the three stands out of 18 that are good for this morning's wind. I just hunted by this one. And so I make decisions like that based on, um, you know, a very systematic approach to hunting the low pressure stand, staying off the side. So I allow that system to take place and not affect my emotion as, as much. There's been many stands that I've shot my best buck ever out of that I never hunted again, or I didn't hunt for two or three years just because it didn't come in the, up in the wind rotation the following year. So I look at things very systematically. One thing that really uh, confounded me last year was um, we had a great season. Um, Minnesota was awesome. Um, shot my target buck. I think it was October 28th. And, you know, Diane got her first buck with a bow. Uh, just we had so many good things happening. Um, but in Wisconsin, um, I went over there for the first time the end of October. And I promptly wounded a buck. And you, know, you look in the footage and the buck dropped six inches before my arrow got there. Dylan put even some illustration on there to show that. But bottom line is I just didn't aim well enough because I know when they're inside that bubble of 20, 25 yards and they hear that noise of the bow going off or any kind of disturbance, they have a tendency to just run. And when they do that, it seems like they duck the arrow. So that was the first buck. You know, luckily we got pictures of him in January. He's alive, made it through the season recovered from his high, you know, high wound. And, uh, so the next set out, um, I promptly missed a buck at, uh, 30 yards the arrow stuck in the tree. He was one that I was really after for a couple of years, a nice five-year-old. Um, I think the next set out, um, I had a big monster booner. I don't even know how big it was, um, that responded to a grunt of mine. And then he stopped, um, I knew I shouldn't have done it. He was at 40, 45 yards to the brush and just standing there. I grunted again. He turned around and walked away. I don't know if I spoke them to this day, but I feel like I messed up because once you grunt and they move your way, you should put the thing away and just shut up and not worry about grunting again unless he starts walking away, you know, on his own. And so I really messed up there. Uh, my friend Mike from Michigan, uh, he came out and now I can say I did have COVID during this time we'll we'll offer an excuse there but there's really no excuse but mike was over my shoulder he just wanted to come out and sit with me he was going to hunt for a gun season opener and um i uh i had a buck come in that was point blank a really nice one and a uh, nice mature buck and i missed him uh right with mike by my side and uh, uh you know fast forward to early january i missed another five-year-old that i'd passed up uh, two years prior, um, or the year prior, he was a four-year-old then. And, uh, and he made it through the season too. So I didn't film my Wisconsin tag last year. 
And uh, I just got really beat up. It's been about 10 years since mm-hmm. I had a season like that. And I hope, I hope it's just going to happen every 10 years. <laughs> but um, I, I practiced a lot. We have a good outdoor range at the new house. And was able to shoot long distance, short distance, all over the place. And it just, uh, I shot with Diane a lot because it was her first year using a vertical bow. She'd send me pictures of groups. But um, I just, I, you know, for whatever reason, had one of those years that, it seemed like, you know, still had my really good buck opportunities. I think every three or four sets, I had no chance at another mature buck. Um, I just really messed up my season. <laughs> had to eat my tag, and that's just the way it goes sometimes. But that was a very, very frustrating season. And the one good thing is, though, the season was open till the end of January for bow, and so I got to hunt all the way to the end of January. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I wore my tag out. And and you still filled several tags, though, between Minnesota and, and somewhere else, right? Yeah, I shot um, one in Kentucky and then two in Minnesota. Um, and then I shot a really good target buck with my muzzle loader in Wisconsin. Yeah. So I can't complain. Um, but that bow tag is one that, you know, since 2002 in Wisconsin, I think I haven't filled it maybe one other time. And no one's going to feel sorry for me, but the whole point is that it was, it was a very frustrating season. And I really hoping I don't have another one like that. I actually am just putting a new site on just its new look. Um, and, uh, I'll get a, a different bow. I just usually try to change things up. That's what I did after 2010 and it, and it worked for the next 10 years or nine years, whatever it was. But, uh, so that was, that was, uh, it was fun. I got to, I got to experience a lot. It's almost like, you know, really do you, do you become a better hunter if you go out and sit one time and, and shoot a buck or two times, three times, I got to experience the whole season. I think I learned more about the land, even on a land that I've hunted since 2014. I, I have experienced the same thing you just described and it's no fun. Uh, and you always yeah, go yeah, yeah, there's parts of it that are that are fun to be out there hunting more often, but the moments right after, the days right after, are not fun. Um, how how did you handle the immediate period after one of those misses or after that wound? Some people are of the mind that they're like, I'm getting right back out there, and they're back out there the very next day, the very next hunt. Some people they need to take time away, they need to go shoot for a few days or a week. Uh, how do you mentally handle that where you've, you've put in, I mean, I know you, Jeff, you've put in a tremendous amount of work and time and effort and resources into getting a shot at one of these mature bucks and to have that opportunity right there and then it slipped through your fingers. I know how much that much, I know how much that must frustrate you and what that feels like. What goes through your mind that night, that next day? How do you rebound from that? Boy, you know, that's a great question because I just, I look at it, you know, again, what's my next opportunity? When's my next set? I think, um, the second time that I, the, the first time that I missed, um, that was on election day and that was, I had hunted in the morning and I missed and, uh, I'm just stubborn and determined enough that I hadn't planned on sitting all day in that stand, but it's one that's a transition between bedding and food. It's kind of a big X movement where it's located um, I thought it could offer a good sit all day. And so even though my glowing knock was sticking in the tree at 29 yards and I had to stare at it all day and I had no <laughs> food or water, I just made it stand because I'm very stubborn. That's and, my own uh, personal hell right there. 
that's me too. It's kind of like you all, you deserve to look at that track all day. So yeah. it's, uh, and then, I, and it was crazy. I got down, um, walked all the way down, ended up going to vote that night with Diane. Um, I was sweating in the election where, where we at village hall and I just didn't feel, I felt really tired out. And, um, that was on a Tuesday. Well, then, um, we went to dinner that night. I actually felt like, um, going back with Diane, she had driven separate. Um, and leaving my truck in Coon Valley, just going home 50 minutes away in Minnesota, because I just didn't feel like I could stay awake on the way home. And of course, you know, I had a fever on Saturday and we got confirmed the following week we had COVID, but that was the start of it. I just thought it was because I didn't eat and drink all day. And it was kind of a almost torture, but it was, you know, I have that more like that approach, like, man, this is not going to beat me. I'm even with COVID, I went hunting three times when I had COVID walking up that hill 35 minutes the one time i literally took 18 breaks normally i take one or two and that's my stand 40 minutes after i should have but i just and then the next day i'd be in bed all day um i don't know how close i pushed it you know to being uh, really sick but um it's kind of like that stubborn determination that i'm just not going to let this beat me whether it was covid or missing deer or wounded deer i just my thought is to get right back out there you know get right back on the saddle and and uh, try to make something happen. Yeah. Maybe it would have helped me to take a week or two off and try to reassess and shoot my bow a little bit, make some changes. And, but uh, it's just not my nature. Yeah. What about another one of these kick in the nuts situations, which is uh, not missing a deer, but you're up there and we'll, we'll just continue with the November timeframe. Let's say you're up there in the tree and the big old buck that you've been wanting to get a crack at all season, uh, he's coming in. And you got your bow in hand, you're getting ready, you're about to draw back, and something happens, and he busts you. Um, feel free to elaborate how your answer here might differ based on the kind of bust, but let's say he busts you, and he skedaddles out of there. He knows something was up, and he gets out of there on November 12th, let's say. Um what would you do in that situation? Would you give up on that tree completely? Even though this big old buck came through here today, would you say, ah, he spooked out of there, this this spot's burned, and you're going to change up your strategy and try to catch him somebody somewhere else? Or would you say, well, it's the rut. Uh, yeah, he busted me, but it's crazy times, and he might follow Doe right back through here, and I know this is such a good spot that him or the other, the number two buck might roll through still. Um, how would you handle that scenario where you get busted out of a tree in the rut? What's the impact you think that's going to have and how do you react? I look at it like, um, in my mind, I write that standoff for that buck for the rest of the season. And I've had deer that 10 days later, um, come into a situation like that, stop 30 yards away and start moving around the stand just because they know something bad is in that direction. Um, and so I really look at it that, I'm not going after that buck, but what's really worked though is to pivot and just go to a completely different stand location on the other side of the property. It's crazy how a buck that wasn't regularly using that side of the property all of a sudden shifts his patterns because of that mistake that you made. And you can walk right in and shoot him the first time in that stand. Lo and behold, your number one buck, and it was just because you relocated yourself, um, you know, a quarter mile away. 400 yards away, 300 yards, whatever it was. And you got into his new daylight core range um, because he ultimately didn't want to leave that area or he was still around. And 
And at the same time, maybe you have a small enough property where he's gone. I'm just starting to focus on number two then. And, but really, I found shifting over. We've killed several bucks like that where he just shifted to the other side of the property and we're able to connect with that buck that, you know, let's say it was a wound. We've shot bucks that where we've got broadheads back. Um, the wound was still healing from 10 days earlier, a week earlier, but they were a long ways away from that other stand where we messed up on them. From. What do you think that range is that you think, like, what's the... The the, yeah, ep- the the epicenter of the impact is like where the stand was that you got busted. Uh, how far do you think you need to get away from that to remove yourself from the impact zone where you think that this buck might be forgiving again? Is it because uh, you know when you say the other side of the property, that's obviously going to be very different depending on how big somebody's property is. So is this two hundred yards? Is this sure. a mile? On average, if you had to give me some kind of range, like how far away do you think you have to get to be in a, a safe zone again? Well, I'm going to answer like, you know, and this relates to a lot of different um, scenarios, whether it's how far our deer beds away from a food source, um, how far to find a buck's bedding area away from his, his afternoon food source. But in a coverless ag region, that might be 100 yards away because cover is limited. And, deer, and, and if you're in a, you know, fantasy land state where you have a lot of mature bucks, there's hardly any hunting pressure, then maybe that buck comes right back to that location. But in where most of us hunt, that's not the case. In the UP of Michigan, you spook a deer, it might be that he's across the swamp a mile, a mile and a half where you're going to find him uh, moving around. He's just done from that area and he's used to a lot of space and he takes it as his afternoon movement from his bedding area to his food source might be three quarters of a mile regularly on a daily basis where that's 100 yards in a coverless northern Ohio flat ag region. So, you know, where I'm at, it's more like, you know, I get three, 400 yards away, maybe an elevation change, and uh, I'm right back in that potentially uh, movement for daylight movement where that buck might be. So I would say two, two to 400 yards in an average scenario in big wooded wilderness area where there's not a lot of deer that could be a mile or more. And in a coverless ag region, uh, like some of the ones we've talked about earlier, then that might be 100, 150 yards. Hmm. So I hate to do this, but I'm going to keep I'm going to keep us focused on misery. <laughs> and oh, uh, sure, no, that's fine. And I, and, think, uh, I think people like to hear about that. Yeah. So, so here's another here's another scenario that that at least I've encountered. I think a lot of people probably have, which is you get into this this same time period, November. It's the rut. It's the it's the Super Bowl, right? We've looked forward to it all year. And maybe this is just me, but if you consume enough hunting media, if you daydream enough, if you're as uh, voyeuristically of an optimistic as an optimist as I am, you're just dreaming and imagining that November is going to be amazing, right? It's going to be everything you've ever imagined. There's going to be bucks running everywhere, but then inevitably you get out there and there'll be some period during the rut where it's dead. It's November 7th through the 10th, and it's supposed to be dynamite, and it is not. You're hunting great spots that are by the textbook dynamite rut hunting spots. You're downwind of an amazing doe bedding area, or you're in the pinch point of all pinch points, and you just know that a big boy is going to roll through there. But you sit there on November 7th, nothing. You sit there November 8th, nothing. You hunt the best bedding area in the area on November 9th, and there's nothing. And you don't get it. Like, what's going on in that scenario, Jeff, when you're hunting what should be the best days of the year and it's good conditions too. It's not like it's hot. It's nice, 
cool right. to cold weather and you're hunting your best rut spots and nothing for three or four days. What do you do then, Jeff? Do you, do you stay in the spots because you know you have faith that eventually he'll roll through? Or do you call an audible and totally change your plan? That's, uh, I love that question because I try not to get into that situation in the first place because I'm, I'm really making the decision to use a stand. I'll give you an example. Like even in the early season, I can remember we traveled down from the UP to hunt in Wisconsin. It's a seven-hour drive. And um, it was early season. We had a great cold front. And um, I went out to a water hole that gives us a lot of rut activity and some of our best bucks the entire year, uh, daylight pictures. So I went in there, let's say it's October 5th. And, um, and instead of being uh, proactive, going back and changing the SD card, checking it out on the computer, you know, walking a mile and a half round trip, going back and forth to the truck, and we had time to do so, I just right, went right into the stand thinking it'd be okay. And I sat there just that one evening, pulled the card. There hadn't been a shooter buck yet that year. And I feel like I wasted a set. And so whether I'm going by sign, current sign, uh, scraping activity, like I said, I have a mock scrape at every stand, every bow stand location. And so you can tell just by tracks, if there's a big track there, if it's being worked, even if you didn't have a camera on it, you can tell by rubs, uh, frequency of scraping, tracks in the area. So I'm trying to make a situation where I'm not even hunting a stand unless I have good reason or intel to think that there's a, a buck that I want or at least some activity in that, that spot to begin with. So if I sat in a spot for three or four days in a row, I'm, I'm definitely moving. Now, if I'm on public land, that's a different scenario because then I'm hunting big rut movement and I might be shooting a buck that's coming through every four or five days in that location. He might be three miles away when I go in and sit in that stand. So in an outstanding rut cruising funnel on public land, a lot of times it's more time in the stand where on private land, it's more timing of the current activity in that stand. And if I don't see that activity, I'm definitely leaving to look at somewhere else because that means there's a hot doe somewhere else. There's a combination of hot does, a family group. There's something that's drawing deer away from that position. And I, I do my best to go find that yeah. and uh, make sure that I'm hunting at current time. And so I'm very unforgiving uh, when it comes to stand locations. I, think that it's dead i'm immediately moving um you know and finding the next best stand and that's why a lot of times i'm hunting completely different stands in the morning and the evening i might hunt all day but here i just had a dead stand and, and you'll even see this in the morning like you have a hot stand in the morning that's a dead stand in the afternoon so a lot of times a great stand in the morning is not a great stand in the afternoon and that's why i'm switching stands most of the time unless I'm torturing myself watching a glowing knock all day. Cause I just missed one. Mm-hmm. That's more of a stubborn <laughs> personal thing, but yeah, I'm definitely staying mobile and, uh, and I'll, you know, and just real quick, I know my, uh, my buddy Carl down in Georgia, we hunted in Wisconsin for many years, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, a couple of times, Michigan, um, really good hunting buddy. He'll actually be out to Minnesota to hunt public land out of my place this year, but we, we hunted the same land. Um, he actually put in a little bit more time because he take an entire nine day window off every year to hunt the rut where I just go down and hunt the weather. And so during that, uh, the 12 years we had the land, I shot 17 bucks out of 14 different stands. He shot nine bucks out of two stands, eight bucks out of one. So he would live and die by that stand. Almost like you're talking about if it was dead, it was dead. He just kept hunting it where I was always looking for the next freshest stand. In fact, it got to a point when we were choosing stands, we always drew straws 
we'd narrow it down to the, you know, the handful of stands we thought were the best for the sit. And he'd always want to go hunt the horse pasture stand. And so that gave me another 20 stands to choose from. And so to me, it was always about finding the next freshest stand with sign. And so even, you know, going a little bit out of your way and finding, you know, going by this out of way stand and you look over there and wow, there's just fresh scrapes, there's fresh rubs, you know, there's current sign. And then I'm going and sitting on that, even though that stand initially might not have been my favorite, I always look at it like you're, you're, this is something I live by is that your favorite stand should be the next stand you shoot a buck out of, not your last stand. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> uh, so speaking of moving, one of the things that I always find myself in debating during a day is that scenario where you know you want to move from a morning stand to an evening stand. And you're trying to decide when the right time is to pull out and head out to the next spot. All things being equal. I know that if you were sitting at 11 o'clock and a big buck rolled through, you might sit longer and wait or whatever it is. But if you had to just, yeah. if you had to just pick, what's the perfect time, the best ideal time to make your move? If you have to go from a morning stand to a new evening stand, and we're talking somewhere in this rut time frame, which is kind of tricky because lots of times there can be that midday yeah. movement. Um, when would you optimally pull down your set and move to the new spot or, or climb out and move to another pre-hung set? That's, uh, I would say usually that average time frame. Now, how cold is it, Mark? Let's, <laughs> I've had okay, some, uh, yeah. Northwest instance where I'm staring into the wind and it's like 18 degrees and there's a 20 mile an hour wind, but it's a really good day and uh, I'm getting ready to get down at 11. But I would say between 11 and 1. Um, is typically the time frame, and I'm kind of like you. You see a buck that goes through at 11. Well, you know if there's still some movement like that, I'm waiting waiting another hour. Um, so, but but it's it's good to point out that a lot of these morning rut stands are bedding area related. If you think about it, that again, kind of going back to a good stand in the morning might not necessarily be a good stand in the evening. Evening stands related to food sources. When you're sitting in a bedding area stand in the morning, it could be great till one or two, you know, bunch cruising. Eventually they lay up, they're taking a little siesta, break, and then they're heading towards food because every other deer, including those, are heading towards food in the evening. So as it gets closer to dark, deer are leaving your position in a bedding morning bedding area stand um, instead of coming to your position. So you're less likely to see deer right before dark than you are two hours before dark. And so that's why it's a really good reason to flip and uh, change stance plot. Yeah. You know, I found myself more and more often hunting something like you described, like a, a bedding focused type morning stand during the rut. Uh, but then wanting to stay there till that two or three o'clock window, because those bedding areas still get visited during the midday window. And then I try to slip yeah. out like two or three o'clock when I think that midday, you know, when I think that midday little possible burst is over and then I relocate to my evening spot. Um, but I'm always sitting there the whole time thinking, man, should I go sooner? Should I go later? Should I wait an hour longer? Um, you drive yourself crazy thinking about it too much. Yeah. And that's where I think, uh, you know, I like having a time. Like, so I'll just pick a random time, one or two o'clock and then you just move. And so kind of methodically, you just don't think about it. Kind of, this is your plan. Um, I think the more you stew about it, you can think of so many different scenarios. Um, but you just pick a time, sit till that time. And then I look at it like if I said I was going to get down at one and for some reason I cheat, I get out at five to one. Let's say even I'm really cold. 
and I smoke a deer, that's on me. You know, I, I, I was being lazy. I didn't stay till one. Or if I stayed till one and I'm getting down and smoke a deer, yeah, you know, I smoked them, but that was the plan. I got out at one. I stayed till one. I did what I was supposed to in my head. And uh, so you kind of, you know, that's more forgivable to me than getting out of a stand early. So you just pick a time and, and kind of go with it. Kind of like whether it's plant food plots, yeah, your food plots fail. We'll just throw some rye on it. Don't sweat it and enjoy the season. I, I guess I look at it like, too, there's just so many other things in life to stress about that for me, the fun is the whole system of coming up with the plan of, you know, hunt here in the morning, here in the afternoon. I'm going to pick this time. I'm going to move. And if bad things happen because you were moving or because you got down at that particular time you had chosen, it's, yeah, just don't sweat it. Yeah, that's, it's, well, at least for me, easier said than done. But I, I like the sentiment, but it always seems like I tell myself that in August and then come November, I'm I'm sweating it still. <laughs> oh, that's, how old are you, Mark? They're uh, 33 or 34 33 one of the two somewhere in there <laughs> yeah i remember when you were you when you were a lot younger too but i'm 51 and i think uh it's interesting last year when i shot my target buck in minnesota that's the buck i wanted i was so excited i went out to a stand on october 26th it was the evening hunt i suspected he would be there i got in the stand and the wind was iffy and i only made it about 15 20 minutes i got down went to another stand and two days later, I shot him out of that stand. And that night when I was sitting there, during daylight, that buck walked from that downwind approach. And I feel if I was in that stand, I would have spooked him. Maybe I wouldn't have got him for the entire season. And so that discipline at 51 is not the discipline I had when I was 30 or maybe 35 or certainly not 25. So it just becomes like you you kind of have this stuff in your head. This is what I'm going to do. This is what works. This is what's worked in the past. It's easy to develop that discipline over experience. So what I'm trying to say is, yeah, easier said than done. But if you do it for many years and that's what works, then a lot easier at 51 than 33 or 34. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. And and I'm gonna I'm curious about this. And maybe you just told me the answer. That might have been the answer where you just told me right there. But when you look back at yourself at 33. You zoom back from 51 back to 33, and you look at those, uh, you know, 18 years in between. What's the most important change you've made from my age to your age that has led to more success for you? If you could try to condense all the lessons you've learned, all the changes you've made, all the progress that has happened between then and now, and you could put your finger on one single thing, what would that be? Um, that less is more. And so what I mean by that, 2006, I sat 110 times in, in uh, four different states or approximately 12 all-day sits uh, over a four-month period. And I shot two bucks. I passed up 50, 60 bucks, public lands in Michigan, Pennsylvania, private land too. And um, I don't feel like I burned myself out. I burned my stands out. And what I found is like a year like last, you know, I had all these opportunities in Wisconsin, but I only sat maybe 15 times from October, November, December, and January in Wisconsin. I just picked really good times, maybe 18 times. But um, I had really, you know, an opportunity every three or four sets at the most. And it was because I was picking the best times to go. I used, uh, you know, current sign. 
in activity and went in and you expect a high rate of uh, opportunity. Um, even in 2002, looking back, or 2003, looking back, um, you know, 18 years or whatever, I can remember I put a lot more emphasis on hunting the peak of the rut and hunting a five or six day window where I've learned that to take those five days and spread them out over the entire rut and pick the best days to hunt was more valuable than taking five days off in a row, certainly nine days in a row, uh, because I can pick and choose. And not everyone can do that, but a lot of people can say, you know, for example, I'd rather, if I had to pick my time off well in advance, I'd say, okay, I'm going to take these three long weekends in a row. And I'm just picking dates. I don't even know what they are this year, but let's say it was the 25th of October, the 2nd of November, and the 9th of November. I'd rather pick, pick three-day weekends. And and then if you're really lucky, your your employer could say, you know, can I, I could say, can I let you know if I'm going to take Monday off or Friday off for this long weekend? Um, but even then, I'd rather spread out my impact on the land and, uh, and hunt fresher stands in a methodical approach like that where you say, I'm just going to hunt these three weekends, long weekends, whether it's a three or four day weekend, and uh, take my chance to spread out like that. I'm trying to put all my eggs into one basket, thinking that the more days I hunt in a row, the more opportunity I have. So less is more. Uh, certainly my, uh, over the years, my, my sits... Um, my sits per opportunity have decreased uh, drastically. You know, in 2006, that was, you know, 110 sits for two bucks. What's that? You know, I'm not saying I didn't have any other opportunities, but that was, uh, you know, 50 sits per buck, 55 sits per buck. That's a lot of sits per buck. Uh, now it's down more to like four to six, uh, depending on where I'm hunting uh, per buck. And that's because I'm being more timely. And, and for that, then I get to, hunt more states i feel like um i'm not burning out stands i get to hunt a longer amount of time i get to learn more uh, because i'm in the field for a more extended amount of time i'm just not hunting as much you know even if i sat 45 times that might be over three or four states over a four-month period you do the math that's not many sets per week yeah so gosh i don't know time's flying by jeff and i'm getting old really fast but i think you and i did a podcast you're, maybe you're in, still young so you say, um, yeah, uh, the, these two, these two kids, the one and three year old make me feel a lot older, but, um, you and you and I did a podcast together. I, I should know this off the top of my head, but I'm guessing it was 2015, 2016. So something like five years or so ago in which we, we yeah. spent a, we spent a lot of time diving into your theories around the best days to hunt choosing which of these yeah. days you're going to be selective about. And I know you've spent a lot, you've, you've shared a lot on your YouTube channel and you've done articles about this and there's a lot. You've, you kind of have an algorithmic approach to choosing the days that have yeah. the highest odds of success. But what I'm wondering about is how your thoughts, if at all, have changed since 2015 when we did this two-hour conversation diving deep into your theories at that point. So from, from 2015 to 2021, has anything changed in how you predict the best days to hunt? Is there anything different now or that you view as more important or less important than back five, six years ago? Yeah, that's, there's a couple things. And what's interesting is when we talked about that in 2015, 
I think that was around the time that I wrote that rut article for exactly. Outdoor Life. Yes. And that was that November rut issue. And what's interesting is that kind of forced me to put my numbers down on paper. And that's why I'm going to meet the Hunt Wise crew, you know, right now for dinner tonight and we're shooting a bunch of videos tomorrow because they infuse that algorithm into their hunt cast formula. That's just been an incredible ride journey over the last year and a half. But I, I hunted that way for, you know, since the early nineties. And so it's been uh, really focusing on weather change, especially temperature drop. And, and so what's really changed, I think during that time is one of the things I noticed is that, um, you know, it's just kind of an add on is that, when things change, when things change and they get really calm, uh, where there's no wind, I find that no wind isn't necessarily a good thing. And you do seem like there's, a, you know, a, a moderate amount of wind is a good thing, and uh, and I have noticed that throughout the years. Also, it's relative. Like if you have 40 mile an hour winds and it drops to 20 miles an hour, deer notice that change. 20 is still pretty windy. Uh, but if it drops from 25 miles an hour to five miles an hour, there's still that same change. So I think it's all relative. Um, and it, you know, same with temperature change. Um, I think in the early days, I used to focus on, boy, when it's in the high 20s, the end of October, I really need to be in the woods. But if you just had a string of 70, 69, 71, 71, 68, 71 again for five or six days in a row, and then all of a sudden it's a high of 52, even if it's early November and that's warm for that time of year, it's still a huge drop in temperature. And, and really that 18 degree overall drop in temperature for daytime highs, is it really that much different of an impact if it's a temperature drop from an average of 48 to 30? And I don't think it is. And so wind speed change, temperature change, it's all relative, I think. And then at the same time, um, barometric pressure. I used to pay attention to barometric pressure a little bit with thinking, you know, where barometric pressure was high, temperatures the lowest, it's in those two, that's always a great day to hunt. Those are easy to pick out of the forecast when the barometric pressure and temperature meet, deer will be on their feet. Um, a client of mine, Jared Archer, made up that saying a few years ago. I thought that was kind of cool. But the barometric pressure can lie. And so I look at it like deer, they're outside, obviously, 365, and they relate to tangible changes in the weather, whether that's a change in wind speed, the moisture in the air, change in wind direction, obviously the extremities of the weather and volatility of the weather, they relate to all that. And, and so what I notice is that um, you could have a big drop in temperature, a big, big uh, subsiding of the weather conditions that brought about that change. And the barometric pressure is low because just two days later, there's another a front coming through. It's a double front for that week. And so the barometric pressure is low, yet if you miss that time to be in the woods, you just had a 17-degree temperature drop. The winds went from 40 to 21 miles an hour. You had thunderstorms. Now there's no rain. It's been dry for several hours. If you miss that day, you're missing one of the top 10 days to be in the woods all year. At the same time, two days later, everything subsides. The temperature bottoms out, barometric pressure is high, outstanding time to hunt. But two days later, the pressure could be higher, even though it's 10 degrees warmer. And that's a case where even though the pressure is high, if you're going by a high pressure, barometric pressure reading, that's going to give you a false positive, meaning that the best day was just two days earlier when the temperature bottomed out and the conditions cleared. 
And a lot of that goes back to, too, um, even feeding. You go, go back to that deer feeding five times in a 24-hour period. That talks a lot about this in that Outdoor Life article in 2015, that if, if deer are pressured back in their bedding areas because they're stressed out and they don't want to move because of the extremity of weather, they're missing quality feeding times and quality feeding opportunities. So as soon as that weather breaks, they want to put the feed back on. But just like you or I, if we were lost in the wilderness and we didn't have anything to eat for five days, the first thing we do when we get rescued is we pick out. And what do you pick out the second day and the third day? And so once you pass that second day, third day, after that weather changes, that feeding influence and that really that binge feeding to replenish their bellies. And you think about it when a storm goes through, they're stressed out. So they're losing energy, just pure stress. Um, even in you know Minnesota, they rerouted snowmobile trails around deer yards because they found that that would extend the amount of energy that deer could actually expend throughout the winter time to actually relate to saving their life. You know, it might add days at the end of the winter, a harsh winter, to their life because those snowmobiles aren't going by and taking energy away just by stress. So when a front goes through deer, there's loud noises. It's windy. Uh, they're burning energy for stress. And then on top of that, it's getting colder. So they're burning energy to stay alive and keep warm. And then third, the big one is they're missing quality feeding opportunities. They might be stuck in their beds for five, six, seven feedings in a row. So when that happens, it's kind of a triple whammy where they just want to feed as soon as that breaks. And so, you know, as it relates to barometric pressure, to me, it's more related to their, their loss of energy the stress levels they receive, they want to feed immediately after breaks, and who cares what the level is at that point. And that's why I think you can have the same barometric pressure level and there's a snowstorm coming. Deer, we've all seen it where deer are feeding out in the field. It's, uh, uh, you know, kind of a light packed snow that's coming down. It's one, two inches, three inches. And deer are just feeding out in the field. They're running around like they have no care in the world. But if there's a blizzard coming, they don't even leave their, leave their bedding areas, and you could have the same barometric pressure reading at that time. By moisture in the air, the amount of wind, wind speed, um, maybe temperature change, whatever it might be, they know to stay back in their beds or go out into the fields and feed, even though you have relatively the same pressure reading. So again, they, they're acting to pure tangibles, and that's something that I've really focused in on. And it's kind of like, you know, in 2018, I wrote my last book that All Weather White Tent. So at that time, as really, uh, it was a good opportunity to write and really not focus on barometric pressure and, and just be really clean about that algorithm approach. And I feel like when you take the barometric pressure out of the equation, it makes things uh, make a lot more sense for when you're actually when they don't, uh, because you're eliminating a lot of false positives and false negatives. Man, this is uh, this is exactly the kind of the, the exactly the kind of just different level of insight that I always know I'm going to get with you, Jeff, that I always enjoy because you and I are both in the best possible way. We are both super nerds. We love to geek out on these little details. <laughs> and uh, I always yeah, know <laughs> when I get you on the phone, I'm going to have a like-minded soul that I can, uh, that I can get into this stuff with. And I love it. But uh, I know you've yeah, got, I, I like to you know, yeah. It's the best, but uh, I know you've got to get rolling here yeah. pretty soon to your evening meeting, and, and I've got to go too. So I want to shift to just a rapid fire couple questions here to, to wrap this up. And yeah. it's going to be a handful of questions. Just just give me a one word answer to these five quick ones, 
and then we're going to shut it down. So some of okay. the stuff we've talked about over the years, some of this we haven't. Um, but let's just see what you think on these. Just first thing off the top of your head. So are you are you ready for the rapid fire session? I think I am. Okay. okay. All right. Does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? Um, yes, for morning feeding opportunities. That was more than one word, but I'll give you a pass, Jeff. <laughs> uh, would you? It was still short. Though. It was short. Would you? Would you take a fifty-yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? Yes or no? Uh, yes. If you could only have one of these tools for the rest of your hunts, would it rather be a set of rattling antlers or a grunt tube? You can only have one. A uh, grunt tube. All right. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads for the rest of your life. Which one? Hybrid. That's cheating, um, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, you, meant to, you meant to ask that one too, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I really do like those hybrids. All right. Should you stop a buck with some kind of sound before shooting with a bow? Yes or no? Ooh. Um, most of the time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, I know you've got farms in Minnesota and Wisconsin, so this one's going to be tough. Which state, which state has better deer hunters, Minnesota or Wisconsin? Oh, 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 I'm not going to answer that one. <laughs> I'll offend two people. I don't, honestly, I don't, can I expand on this slightly? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, give you the pass. I really have a lot of respect for the wilderness type hunters. And when you get into northern Minnesota and some of those wilderness type settings, uh, northern Wisconsin can be really rough, brutal wilderness, but the expansive amount of the wilderness in Minnesota and the people that consistently pull big bucks, mature bucks out of that area without the aid of food or anything, they're just going in and hunting them. I have, you know, mad respect for them. Yeah, that is no easy task. That's not even, that's not even Wisconsin or Minnesota hunters in general. It's just that that's a pretty pretty cool area. I know people that pull some monsters out of there, and they do it consistently with nothing in, you know, nothing more than their woodsmanship and, uh, and hunting experience and backpack yeah all right so this can be a a longer answer a little bit longer answer but here's one last scenario let's say i control the world i i rule the world i get to make all the decisions and i'm going to tell you jeff that you cannot deer hunt for 10 years i'm going to take away your deer hunting privileges for 10 years unless unless you can kill a five-year-old buck this year so if you kill a five-year-old buck this year, you can keep on hunting. But if you don't pull it off, you're done for 10 years. But here's the rub. You only get one day to kill that five-year-old buck, and you get one stand location. So you have a very high-stakes hunt. Tell me the date that you're going to choose for this hunt and describe to me the tree stand you're going to hunt for this very important hunt. You know, that's interesting because, uh, you know, we own, we own our acreage in Minnesota. Um, it's 245 acres. I do talk about that. So, um, you know, basically a lifetime so far to get to that point. We have lots of stands, lots of activity. Um, I have a long history of hunting in Wisconsin, even on that short, that small parcel. 
Uh, I think this will be my eighth season. Um, it's going to be November uh, 5th, and it'll be on a ridge top in Wisconsin on that small parcel um, adjacent to a really nice bedding area that's difficult to get into that stand. And uh, it's kind of in an X and a hub of movement, and I can blow my scent off either side of the ridge um, and even down the ridge because it slopes down. And uh, I'm going to get into that stand about just in time because I need to rely on thermals to carry my scent away in the morning hours. So if I get in there hour before light, there's a good chance that a, a buck, if they're in that area, could be downwind to me because the thermals just sinking down below me, uh, where that's not going to happen at daybreak when the sun starts uh, rising and things heat up. So, um, And I'm going to sit in that stand right there all the way till dark, just sit in that one stand and um, that would be, uh, that would be where I'd take my chance on that small parcel, uh, a person that I know and love and, uh, not to say that there's not a photo, but I guess the history and, uh, knowing some of those bucks pretty intimately in the area. And that's where I'd take my chance. All right. I like it. And I like your chances. I bet it'd work out for you, Jeff. I, uh, I, I enjoyed this. I, I always appreciate your chats and I, I appreciate your time making, uh, making this work on the drive. So Jeff, you have made it through the, what would you do gauntlet? Nice. And I'm almost through Chicago fully. So that's a good thing too. <laughs> I'm glad that we could help pass the time through that, uh, sometimes miserable stretch of I-80 or 90 or 94, whichever what bit you're on. So, uh, man, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the time. This is, uh, yeah, this has been great. Good. Always enjoyable, uh, talking to you. And I really appreciate you having me on the, on the podcast. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, be sure to go check out all of Jeff's content. He does great work. You can find it at the whitetailhabitatsolutions.com website. You can go to the Whitetail Habitat Solutions YouTube channel. Um, he's got a great set of online courses right now on his website, too, that if you're trying to go deeper into some of these topics, that will absolutely help you do it. So check it all out. Uh, check out his books. Like I mentioned, they're all worth your time and energy. So with all that out of the way, appreciate you spending time here. I hope you enjoyed this one. I learned a lot. Jeff always is a guy that I can take something away from. So hoping you're feeling the same way. And until next time, thank you and stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today 
at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.